And uh, Vivian is going to come and read to us, firstly from Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, this is a, a prophecy that was in the Old Testament. Uh, it was a prophecy that was written about 800 years before Jesus was even born. And as you'll see very clearly, it uh, speaks uh, volubly of uh, the birth of Jesus, our Saviour. Thank you, Vivian. As Scott said, we're reading from Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 7, to begin with. This is the word of the Lord. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honour Galilee of the Gentiles, by way of the sea, along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoiced at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from th that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. We're reading next from Luke 2, verses 1 to 20. It's on the back page of the handout. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the ch people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense, and of myrrh, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. 
Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realised that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. Amen. That was a bit exciting to watch that Facebook little presentation there, wasn't it? So it feels like a, t- a tough act to follow now. All the drama in that one. Well, let's come before um, our Lord God in a time of prayer and then think about the passage that's on the back of your outline there. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We pray that you'd help us to understand uh, something of this wonderful story and see how it connects with our lives. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I love Christmas time. Uh, I've always loved Christmas, even as I was a a little boy growing up, getting up early, which I seem to think is a tradition that's been passed on uh, to a few people around here this morning as well. Rossi got up about 4 o'clock, Andrew was up at 1.15am. It wasn't just me. But uh, it's a real buzz, isn't it? There's a, a buzz that goes with uh, the end-of-year parties, seeing Christmas lights and decorations, even put up in boring office buildings where people try to uh, make the place look a bit nicer. And you even see a bit of goodwill amongst people that doesn't normally always come out. I noticed even driving up Gordon Street recently, complete strangers are standing in Santa Claus kits and waving at the traffic and ringing their bells and cars are honking back. It's quite a, quite a nice time. And you get to see things that are a bit out of the ordinary too, don't you? I um, went to a shopping centre a couple of years ago and saw a, a man showing off his real live reindeer. There they were, Dasher and Dancer, and they had these uh, nice big velvet horns, and you could touch them as well. The man let me touch these reindeer's horns, and, and I say to the owner as I'm touching them, wow, look, you can feel these things are really warm and spongy, and they were. They, they had this blood flowing through them, and, and uh, it was, they were great to sort of squeeze, and it was quite a fascinating moment. And the guy looks at me and says, yeah, and if you squeeze a bit harder... He'll uh, knock you in the nose with him. He's pretty accurate too. <laughs> so I decided I'd better not squeeze too hard. But if we uh, think about the buzz that's behind Christmas and want to dig a little bit deeper, we might consider some of the meaning that's behind the pictures of Jesus uh, laying in a manger that we see on Christmas cards and also in those uh, decorations uh, and displays at David Jones. And even if you go out to King Creek and you see the award-winning light displays, they have the little nativity scenes there as well. Jesus, they always do it a little bit uh, odd though. They, they put Mary and Joseph in some pretty royal kind of clothes and, and they were dirt poor. Uh, and Jesus is this cute little white baby, this little Anglo-Saxon baby. 
but actually he was probably had uh, skin a bit, bit darker than that. And so we see that the marketing people try to focus on something here to get towards the deeper meaning, but they just stop short, don't they? The fact is what this passage tells us this morning is that Jesus lying in a manger was only a sign. He was a sign that what God had told the shepherds was true. And I'll show you that from Luke chapter 2 verse 12. It's in your passage there. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in clothes, cloths and lying in a manger. But it can be a bit of a mistake, can't it, to um, focus so much on the sign uh, and forget the thing that the sign's signifying. I'll illustrate my point. When I was a, a kid growing up, we had a pet dog called Scooby, and after a while, Scooby got a bit blind and deaf. He, he wasn't too stupid, but he was blind and deaf. Uh, and we'd throw dog biscuits, and occasionally you'd throw the dog biscuits, and Scooby wouldn't see the dog biscuit, but he'd see my white finger pointing around the air. And Scooby would be looking at my finger <laughs> kind of like this, and he'd be forgetting to focus on the dog biscuit. And I think that's what the marketing people seem to do with Jesus and the sign of the baby in the manger. They, they focus on the sign, but they don't get to the deeper meaning and look at what this sign really signifies. So what does this sign point to? Or what is the real reason behind the buzz that we enjoy at Christmas time? Well, we have a look in uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, and we can start to see something of what this sign is all about from the angel's message to the shepherds. I'll read Luke 2, verse 10. But the angel said to them, Don't, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And so the baby in a manger is a sign that They've got the right child. This is, this is the saviour. Now, the Jews were really looking for a saviour. They wanted someone who would rescue them from their enemies. Uh, even the census that we read about earlier, where um, we saw the map on the Facebook program of you know, Mary having to travel, was a, a thorny reminder that the Jews lived not independently with their own king over them, but they lived under the reign of another king, a Roman one, one called Caesar. In fact, it was Caesar Augustus. Although Caesar lived in a palace hundreds of miles away from where the Jews lived, he had power to disrupt their lives. Can you imagine what it would be like having to you know, head back to your hometown in those days uh, just to go and get counted and to get how much money and property you own counted as well? I'd have to head back to Auburn in Sydney, but at least I could go by car. Uh, Mary, unfortunately, had to travel back to Bethlehem, uh, and she went uh, on a donkey. So it was pretty hard, especially when she's pregnant and late in the pregnancy. So the Jews, they didn't like this. They didn't like being messed around by some other king to order them to turn up for a census so they could be taxed a bit more. And they didn't like to have to show their allegiance to, to actually jump to Caesar's command and go and do that. And so they wanted a saviour. They didn't want someone else's king. They wanted God's king to reign over them. 
And the news from the, the angels to the shepherd is that this baby that's lying in a manger, that's the sign that that is God's king to them. He was born in the city of David, which is Bethlehem. He was Christ the Lord. And Christ is a Greek word, which is um, a translation of a Hebrew word, Messiah, which means anointed one. And so we're told that he's, he's the Jewish king. He's the, the king of Israel. And he's God's king. Which is something that Mary already knew about, though, isn't it? We know that from Luke chapter 1, verse 32. This is what the angel Gabriel said to Mary. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He's going to be a king. And he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. But it's funny how although the, uh, the Jews wanted their own king and they thought the, the Romans were the enemy, it's funny that the, the greatest enemy wasn't the Romans. The greatest enemy for the Jews was their sin against God. We see something of the, the sin of the people uh, when John the Baptist spoke to them. This is what John the Baptist said in chapter 3. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? See, John the Baptist is a fairly straight shooter, and he's saying that God is a holy God who cannot tolerate sin, and God's wrath is to come. And so he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, which means you've got to show that you've turned back to God by a different life. You've got to show that it's genuine, that you've, got, you've, you've turned back to God. And the, then the crowd spoke to him. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. And so there's an encouragement there for them to be generous and not to be greedy. Tax collectors also came to be baptised. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to do, he told them. Presumably the tax collectors were doing a fair bit of that, taking more than they should have been taking. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. And so there seems to be this issue that the people need to turn back to God and show that they have changed lives. And John calls them to do that. Their enemy wasn't so much the Romans. Their enemy was their uh, rebellion against God, their sin. John the Baptist came before Jesus and we're told that he came to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. That is, God's people would know what it was to be saved because they'd be forgiven. But how would this forgiveness come about? How would this baby in a manger, this little baby, bring forgiveness of sins? Well, I saw a little interesting parallel uh, in this passage about how Jesus was born in humble circumstances, in a cow shed, laid in a manger, and he died in humble circumstances as well. For at the start, we find that Jesus' cloth was... Um, wrapped in cloths, he's wrapped in swaddling cloth, and placed in a manger. But this is what Luke says at the, uh, the end of his gospel in Luke chapter 23, verse 52. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea asked for Jesus' body. He went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, and here's the same words, wrapped it in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb. 
cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. And so Jesus was born in humble circumstances, wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a manger, and he died in humble circumstances. And he's again wrapped in cloth and laid, but this time in a tomb. The disciples didn't understand all that Jesus was saying about what his death meant for them. And so he explained it to them. This is what Luke tells us in chapter 24. He says, Then Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And so we're reminded that the way Jesus saves is by dying for sins and rising again. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 5. He says, you see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. As we think about that Port Arthur massacre, how for some of the family members, people were willing to lay down their lives. You wouldn't just do it for anyone. But the point in this passage that Paul's bringing out is God shows his love for us, he says in verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still rebelling against God, while we were still people forgetting about God and running life our own way, doing our own thing, Christ died for us. And he says, since we've now been justified by his blood, we're no longer condemned, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? The Bible tells us that God is a holy God, that he cannot tolerate sin, uh, and that he does something for us. He, he sends his son uh, to take the penalty for our sin. In fact, it's a, it's a profound mystery. God takes the sin of the world upon himself in the person of Jesus. And that's what's really behind the buzz and the joy at Christmas time. There's a, there's a wonderful message that God's graciously sent his son into the world. He sent Jesus into the world to die for your sins and to die for my sins. Jesus takes the penalty for our sin. For those who put their trust in him, they have a saviour. And they can enjoy being spared from God's wrath, from God's judgment on sin. But the world at large finds it hard to get excited about this foundational aspect of uh, Christianity. Have you noticed that? It's not surprising that the world likes to focus on Santa and chocolate. Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's ridiculous. For people who don't believe it, the story is ridiculous. But Paul says, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. This is the way to get saved. This is the only way God's provided for us to get saved. Even our newspapers show how much people want to avoid the real meaning of Christmas. In one article um, titled, Forget Old Lang Syne, Let's Sing Capitalism's Praises. This is what uh, Herald writer Peter Saunders writes. Every year, as we mill around the shops, buying presents, commentators warn that 
The true meaning of Christmas is being eroded. And then Peter Saunders goes and writes an article that has nothing to say about the true meaning of Christmas. The only meaning that he draws from Christmas is that it's good in a capitalistic economy because we can get our hands on more goods and services. That's why Christmas is good. That's what it's all about. Now, I've got to say, at one point, um, this guy does have a point. We do, we do produce more things cheaply that these days um, than we did in the 1850s. And we live a lot longer and we enjoy things like MRI scans to improve our health. And plasma TVs are pretty good too, I've noticed. So if you got one for Christmas, uh, you've done pretty well. Even one of those special LCD TVs. In fact, they're so good that uh, I'm almost tempted to get up even before the, the show starts and watch a bit of test pattern on them. You remember the old test pattern? It's... They just show nothing on TV. Well, it looks so good on the plasma TVs, it's tempting to even watch the test pattern. But although capitalism can be praised because it can lead to the production of a great TV, it's really not the real meaning behind the buzz we enjoy at Christmas, is it? For us to forget the birth of Jesus at Christmas time, like Peter Saunders does in his article, and to go on and sing the praises of capitalism really shows that our hearts are disconnected from God, doesn't it? It really shows that our hearts are far from God. To sing simply the praises of capitalism and forget to sing praises to God and to give thanks to him for the salvation he's given us in his son shows that we've really fallen out with God. For the truth of the matter is that we do need more than consumer goods. The truth is that we need a saviour. If we think we're like Jimmy Barnes's working class man in the song, you know the one? I've practised this before this talk. He's a simple man with a heart of gold in a complicated land. Oh, oh he's a working class man. If we think we're like Jimmy Barnes's uh, working class man with a heart of gold, then we need to take another look at our hearts, don't we? We need to take another look at our words and our actions. And if we're still not convinced, maybe we can ask the people around us what we're really like. Because they'll tell us. Well, if they're honest anyway. Paul says, we don't have a heart of gold. We're people who need a saviour. He says about humanity, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. We all know something of the God who's there, but we fail to submit to him. That's the Bible's message. We've always failed to give glory to God as we should. We've all lived lives that are forgetful of God. We get on and do our own thing and we, we forget about God. And we all need the forgiveness that comes through his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the great little message of Christmas today is that we're invited to um, not sing capitalism's praises, but to sing praises to God for his goodness and kindness to us. This is what the angel said on that first Christmas. Do not be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. In the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And then a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel and saying, Glory to God in the highest 
and on earth, peace to men on whom his favour rests. Well, the challenge for you and for myself this Christmas is, are we going to leave here today singing the praises of capitalism? Or are we going to leave singing the praises to God for sending a saviour into the world, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the saviour for our sins, the one that we need? Let's close in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we do acknowledge that we are people that forget about you and that we fail to live how you call us to live as your people, that we sin in our words and in our deeds, in our thoughts. We forget about you and we want to do our own thing. And Lord, we're sorry for that, but we're very grateful that uh, you've given us the saviour that we need. We thank you for Jesus who came into the world, uh, who also was born in uh, humble circumstances and, and died in humble circumstances as well for our sin. Lord God, we pray that you would forgive us for forgetting about you and for rebelling against you. And we thank you that you're kind to us and that you've given us a saviour. So we thank you uh, this Christmas for Jesus, our Lord and saviour. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.